Good morning, everybody. It was a balmy 20 degrees when I went out the door this morning. I think we're up five degrees from that, so uh, welcome to the warmth. Uh, glad that you're here today. Uh, Carmen mentioned earlier, we're talking about identity theft this month, and we're really talking about how there are certain things in life that just tear us away from what God has intended for us, from the life that he's planned for us, from uh, knowing who we are, and from knowing what he's called us to be. And last week, we talked a little bit about how relationships can do that. They can, they can steal us away sometimes when we get them out of, out of sync. And this week, we're going to talk about how success or achievement can do that in our lives as well. It can kind of become a focus that, that pulls us away from God. Now, I've been fortunate to get to know some pretty successful people in my life. Uh, I've had my little brushes with fame. There's uh, me and the Donald. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, there was a pastor's apprentice show before the celebrity apprentice. Not many, not many watched it, but that was Donald and I. There's Brad and I. Uh, right before he starred in The Passion of the Christ, I gave him some coaching. No, that wasn't him. No, that's right. All right, and there's, uh, there's me and Tim. Uh, T-bowing together right then. Actually, uh, I got to be honest with you. Okay, some of these pictures may not have been 100% authentic. Uh, but uh, we all look at some of these folks in our lives and, and we realize that there are people uh, who uh, probably most of us would view as successful for one reason or another. Uh, we would look at these folks and we would say, all right, well, they, they have great, they have good looks, they have loads of money, they have lots of influence, they're well known. One of them even beat the Steelers in the playoffs, you know, so successful, I guess. Uh, but regardless of how successful you might view these guys, these different guys to be, you've probably, probably most of us in this room have gotten beyond the point of trying to emulate them or become them. You know, there are times in our life, maybe when we're younger, where we think we're going to be a certain thing, uh, but probably most of us have given up on the idea of being as rich as the Donald or being as good-looking as... Uh, our friend Brad, or as talented maybe as Tim, or whatever it might be for you. But even in everyday life, I think we can get caught in defining success in ways that are just different from the way that God wants us to define success. God does want us to be successful. It's just that his definition of success is, is very different than what our culture or what sometimes we aspire uh, to do. How many of you have ever watched Little House on the Prairie? Be honest. It's okay. This is a family place here. We can... It's one of my favorite shows growing up, I'll be honest. Yeah, I love that show. So I was watching one of the episodes when Charles and Carolyn were going back for their 20th year high school reunion, and they had to travel to the big city of Milwaukee to go to this reunion. And so, you know, uh, they go there, and, and on surface appearance, all of their classmates had, you know, great jobs in the city, and they had had lots of money, and, uh, you know, everything just seemed to be going their way. And poor Charles and Carolyn felt a little left out because, they were from the little house on the prairie, you know, just kind of the simple life. And so they were a little bit, you know, the show opens up and they're uncertain about have, what had their life really been about compared to these classmates of theirs who were so successful. So, um, but what they found, as the, the show unwound, what you found is that you could see that these people who were so successful, these classmates of theirs, also um, had really lousy marriages and very shallow relationships and friendships. And everybody was just playing the game except for Charles and Carolyn, who were authentic folks. And so this one particularly miserable woman tried to put the moves on Charles, you know, because he was Michael Landon, you know. So, so she's, she's putting the moves on Charles, and they, he had to go down and help her by this little creek there outside of town. And, and uh, so she sits down beside him, kind of pulls him down beside her, and, and uh, she says she's just, she's just smitten with this man who's so, so strong and true to his word and, and simple. And, and she said, Charles, your hands... They're so strong. 
and yet so gentle. And this was one of my favorite lines of all time. Charles looks at her and says, yeah, they got that way from shoveling manure, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. It's a good line. She kind of takes his hand and tosses it off to the side, and she's disgusted that he's not uh, receiving her advances on him, you know. And so um, it, the show's wrapping up, and Charles and Carolyn come, you know, they take the stagecoach from Milwaukee back home, and so I don't understand why the stagecoach always dropped them off at the top of the hill overlooking the little house, other than I think that was a good camera angle. But uh, they would always drop them off at the top of the hill. They never went the extra few hundred yards down to their actual house to drop them off. So they drop them off up there at the top of the meadow, and Charles and Carolyn are standing there with their bags looking down at, at the little house on the prairie, and the kids come running out of the house, and they're yelling, Ma! Pa! Ma! Pa! And Charles, there's kind of this moment, and Charles says, Carolyn, if that's not success, I don't know what is. Cue the music. You sing along. You guys remember. So it comes up, credits roll. Great end of the story. You know, success figured out in life just like that. But, you know, all of us have success is defined in different ways. And it starts really, really early in our lives. It does. It starts at a really young age. Have you ever been to a playground and there are parents of two and three year olds and you know, there's kids running around playing everywhere and you see the parents sitting there and parents will strike up a discussion. Usually I've found I'm the one who has to do it because I'm amazed in our culture how four adults can sit there right beside each other and not say a word to each other. Uh, but you start a little conversation, it'll get going and then, uh, you know, someone will say, oh, is that your son? Okay, okay. When did he learn to walk or whatever, you know? Okay. And, you know, is that your little girl? Yeah, yeah. How long has she been talking? When did she, she can write her ABCs. Oh, when did she learn to do that? All right. Well, you know, if she's going to get a scholarship, you're going to need to do, you know, and you're like, what just happened? All of a sudden, the conversation transitioned, and there's some fairly ambitious conversations being had out there on behalf of two- and three-year-olds. There just really are. But this is when it begins in life. And so then you get kids get a little bit older, and maybe you're going to the gym, or you're going to the baseball field, and you watch the parents who are sitting there. You just sit with them. And grandparents, you are not off the hook on this. I sat beside a grandpa at my son's game the other day who was pathetic in his behavior at this game. So he's sitting there, and you know, you're, trying to, you're just going crazy, trying to live out a little success for yourself through your son or daughter or grandchild who's out there on the field. And you just listen to the things that parents or grandparents say. It's almost embarrassing. They're just screaming and screaming at the refs. And if their kid does something wrong, if they commit an error or miss a shot, it's like they're embarrassed at their own kid's ineptness and they're screaming at their kid. And the whole situation, you're just like, wow, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> just feeling that in that moment. So then kids get a little older and they get into school, you know, and you're encouraged to be successful in your grades. I think it's great to, that we should encourage each other to do our best in school. I think that's a really positive thing, and I'm, I'm a fan of parents who put bumper stickers on their car that says, you know, I'm proud of my son who's an honor student or whatever, but I would love to see the bumper sticker that said, my kid got a C and I'm just as proud, you know, or my kid got a D minus, but he's really kind, something, some other promotion. But the message is sent at a very, very early age in life. The message gets sent, and the bell goes off, or when the starter pistol in life gets fired, you need to do whatever it takes. You need to do whatever it takes to blow by your classmates, to beat out uh, your teammates, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Be bigger, be smarter, be faster, be richer, be better than the other guy. And so what do we start to learn at a very early age? We learn that love and acceptance for us are earned. And maybe you didn't feel this way totally, but you knew that when you performed well in life, people applauded. People came alongside of you and, and they, they said, way to go. And 
you felt encouraged on some greater level, that if you flew a little higher, if you ran a little faster, if you did a little bit better, then maybe you would have love and acceptance shown to you until the next time that you failed or came up short. So then you hit fast forward and we move forward maybe a decade or two in all of our lives. And you have that same man or that same woman still running hard, uh, still doing long hours because they're searching for that acceptance that they've never fully felt. They're starved for that unconditional love in life and they're feeling uh, they'll do anything that they can to not feel like a nobody in life because nobody wants to feel that. Nobody wants to feel like I'm the person who's not successful. I'm the one who didn't make it. I'm the one who doesn't get noticed for anything. I don't know if you can relate to that drive to succeed. Uh, maybe you had great parents, and that, but, but all of us at some point or another feel that pressure, whether it's put on us by our family or by our culture or by ourselves, we feel that drive. And when we feel empty, we do think, well, maybe if I just work a little bit harder, maybe if I work a little harder, I'll be somebody. And I'm going to prove to everybody that I am somebody. And if, I have to take long, if it takes long hours or seven days a week, if it, if it costs me my health, if it costs me my marriage, if it costs me my kids, if it costs me my soul, I will pay the price because I can't stand feeling unloved, unaccepted, or feeling like a nobody. And even sometimes subconsciously, I think we get to the place where we say, I don't care what it costs. I'm going to be liked. I'm going to be admired. I'm going to be respected and accepted. And then tragically, we pass this disease on to the next generation. Because we felt it, and so then we affirm them when they do well. And in our affirmation, we're just trying to tell them that they did well, but we miss the affirmation that really reaches down and touches uh, the heart of a young person. And so I'm sure that some of you are here today, and you feel that emptiness on some level because you've had that hole in your heart where you've desired to succeed at something, to really say, feel like you were successful for something in life. And I know because I've been there, and because I've been there, as I was getting this message ready today, I was remembering that I never, ever want to go back to that place. I never want to go back to that place um, where I was before I realized that the unfailing love of Jesus is what fills that hole in my life, where I don't have to push so hard for that. That because of God, I'm already accepted, I'm already loved, I don't have to perform, I don't have to keep a crazy schedule so that other people will think I'm important or that they'll like me or that I run harder than the next guy. God already loves me with an unfailing love. And I don't have to be the best. I just want to be my best for the glory of God. I want to be what God has designed me to be, the best that I can be in who he's designed me to be for his glory, whether I'm ever the best at anything that I do. So God does want us to be successful. It's just that his definition of success is just a little different than our culture or than ours. So that's the journey we're going to go on today. We're going to try in 30 short minutes here to redefine uh, our view of success and uh, to understand success God's way. So if you'd open up your outline, there's just two points in today's message. And the first is this. I redefine success when I, number one, refuse to make achievement into an idol. I redefine success when I refuse to make achievement in my life into an idol. Now, in the book of Exodus, we find that the Israelites being led out of captivity. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the Bible or with kind of biblical history, um, after 400 years in slavery, the Hebrew people, um, they were in slavery to the Egyptians, and the Hebrew people were uh, led by Moses out of captivity. And there were a bunch of miracles and plagues and other things that happened. It's a great story. Uh, but God rescues them from their captor, captors, and he reminds them of the covenant that he made with their forefather, Abraham as they're coming out of that captivity and wandering in the desert. 
So God identified Israel as the people that he wanted to build a very, very special relationship with. That God's mission on earth, which was to let everyone know, to reveal himself to all the peoples of the world and to bless all the peoples of the world, that God was going to choose to do that through this very unique, special group of people, uh, the nation of Israel. He called them out for a specific purpose, and he rescued them from Egypt. And after he rescued them from Egypt, and they had wandered in the desert, um, started to wander in the desert, desert. God uh, specifically wanted to say to the Hebrews, I want to tell you what my relationship with you is going to look like. So he wants to define the relationship with his people right off the bat. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you've ever thought of the Ten Commandments that way. It wasn't just a bunch of rules God decided one day he was going to pass down. He wanted to say to his people after they had been in captivity and started into the, into the desert, I have a very specific way that I'm planning on relating to you. I, I told your, your forefather Abraham about it, but I'm going to tell you now, and I'm going to give you this covenant through these commandments that you're going to understand how we're going to relate to each other. So look at Exodus chapter 20. It starts with verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other small g gods. Now, those verses encompass what we consider to be the first two of God's big ten, the first two commandments. Uh, First of all, God establishes his identity with them. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's who I am. And now he gets into what the Ten Commandments are. The first is this. You must not have any other gods but me. Rule number one in our relationship. In my relationship as God with you, my people, there will be no other God but me. That's the first part of this covenant with you. The second part is this. And if you have your Bible, you can see this open. You can see this a little more clearly because it's a a next paragraph. But the, the second commandment is this. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. And then God goes on to describe that. So no other gods but me, no idols, no idols um, of any kind. So when, we're, when God is talking to this group of people that he loves, his people, and he's defining the relationship, he immediately pointed out to them that he was going to be their first priority. God, want to get this straight. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods but me. There will be no idols in your life. God's trying to make it pretty clear here. This is going to be a, this is going to be a relationship between us, just the two of us. And then he goes on to say, there's something that's called an idol that could come between them and that he doesn't want that to happen. So that's the second thing he wanted them to know. Now, in the Israelite culture, idols tended to be, at that time, actual carvings that were made out of wood or carved out of stone. And so when God said idol, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And surrounding nations to Israel were often uh, nations that worshipped idols. As a matter of fact, they had just come out of Egypt and Egypt had idols everywhere. They had stone car- just everywhere. So The Israelites were very familiar with what it meant to worship other idols. So other nations would put their trust in these idols um, in order for them to receive blessing or other things. But God says to Israel, we're going to do things differently in our relationship. It's going to look different. God was saying, as a part of my relationship with you, what it means for you to be my people, what it means for you to be my children, or specifically, God was saying, what it means for you to be my child, as he was speaking to them individually, is this. For you to be my child, these idols might be a part of everyone else's life, but I am to be the one that you put your trust in for everything. You don't need me and idols. 
You don't need me and a bunch of other things in your life. You just need me. Put your trust in me completely. So idol-free living was God's desire for the people of Israel. He made it clear, first two commands, right away. It was very clear. But as the story goes on, we see again and again how Israel struggled to remain true to what God had asked them to. They struggled. They put idols in front of them all of the time. And today, as God's children, as people who God has looked at, as followers of Jesus, and he said, I don't want anything to come between us. I want this to be about you and me. We fall into the same trap all the time. And idols are sneaky in our lives today because we don't really carve things out of wood necessarily, or we don't really have stone objects that we kneel down to and worship. So we kind of might think, well, that's not really my, that's not my thing. But this is the way idols tend to be sneaky in our culture. Some are blatantly obvious, and we know when we start to idolize a person or some other thing. But many of them are so subtle that we worship them without even knowing that we're doing it or without any intention at all. There's a diagram in your outline, and I think it's a good illustration of how this happens. It's from a book called Identity Theft. And I'm going to explain this to you in a moment. But it basically says the culture's view of success starts with image, and it moves on to idolatry, and then it, result, it ends with identity. And when we adopt our culture's definition of success, this is when we get hijacked from God's call on our lives. So let me explain how this whole diagram works in our lives. We set this image of what a successful life looks like, and then we put ourselves into that picture. So we've got an image of the right body or the right clothes or the right car or the right house or the right job, the right salary, the right office, the right family, what it's going to all look like. We get this image in our mind of what we are pursuing. So then we put ourselves into that image. We picture ourselves in it. And this image gets to be so important that all of our time and all of our energy and all of our resources and all of our devotion and all of our affection go to the pursuit of that image. And you know what the Bible calls this? The Bible actually calls this worship. When uh, we pour all of our energy and our affection and devotion and give all of our love and attention to something, the Bible calls that worship. So we begin to worship this picture or this image that we have of what success looks like in life. And then the Bible says that when we worship anything other than God, that's called idolatry. So when we become worshipers, of any of those pictures that we get in our life, then we become idol worshipers or we get involved in idolatry. So um, it's not, it's not all, sometimes this is how it happens. It begins subtly. And this is what is, is sad so often. I think in our, as I look around our culture, I see people worshiping these images that they have in their lives. They try to attain this image. They really give it all of their attention. They give it everything they've got. And then it just becomes their identity whether it was God's desire for them at all. And it's a vicious cycle that we get into. Let me give you an example. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was watching, uh, it's a new season of American Idol. And I usually get intrigued by American Idol right at the beginning when all the nightmare people are auditioning. And then I don't really usually rejoin it till the very end. Like the last couple weeks, I'll watch who wins. But I usually get lost in the middle. But it was interesting a couple weeks ago because it was a new season. And so here you have all these people. And they're all um, uh, auditioning for American Idol. And whenever they interview the person before they go in for their audition, you know either that person's going to be amazing or they're going to be a disaster. And you can pretty much figure it out within just a couple of minutes of the kinds of questions that they're asking. So then the person goes in, and if this is a person um, who maybe these, these people have done exactly what we just talked about, they have this image of what it would look like for them to be a rock star. All right, And so then what they do, they put themselves into that image, 
and they begin to pour all of their affection and attention and energy into becoming that thing, and then their identity is derived from it. So in this interview, what do they say at the beginning of the interview? They say things like, well, you know, my whole life, this is what I've worked towards, and if I can't become, if I don't win American Idol, I, you know, I'm, there's no, this is it. This is my whole dreams, my whole, my, all of my hopes. I, I am, I need to be the next American Idol. But that's what you hear going in. So then they go in there, and if they're terrible, you know, the judges butcher them, and you see them send them out, and they're slumping over, and there's that moment of weeping. But what do they do when they get out the door? They all do the same thing. I'm going to show them. I am going to go somewhere, and I am going to become famous, and I am going to come back, and I am going to say, see, see, I knew I was valuable. I'm going to prove you wrong. And that's what they're all screaming, usually through curse words as they're walking away through bleeps. You're going to be wrong. I'm going to be the American Idol. You watch it. Now, most of us watch that, and you're thinking like, yeah, okay, but most of those kids are three fries short of a Happy Meal. You know, they are not really. That's not me. I don't live that way. Those folks are on the edge of loony. You know, they've, I'm sorry if you auditioned for American Idol and you're here. That was your experience. I'm sure you weren't. But some of those others um, who, who experienced that in life, you know, and I'm sure you're thinking, well, I don't, that's not me. I don't do that in my life. But I want to encourage you that sometimes whatever the image might be in your life, uh, that our culture defines as successful. As you pursue that image, it can become an idol in your life. And the big thing is this. If it comes between you and God, and if affection and energy and devotion are going towards that image or that picture, then it comes between affection and devotion that should be going to God to help you establish what your true identity is. Then I want to tell you that you're in danger of idolatry. You're in a real dangerous place of putting other things before God in your life. Now, every culture is different. If you've ever spent any time in other cultures, even in different cultures within the U.S., you can travel to places and see that, that cultures are, are very different. It doesn't take long uh, to notice uh, the similarities between cultures, but to also notice the incredible differences. And one of the things that I've noticed about our culture as I travel the world is that this achievement status thing, uh, this idol status, tends to be very, very strong in our culture. It's not that it isn't anywhere else in the world. It is at other places. But for whatever reason, we're the country that's known for Hollywood, and we're the country that's known uh, for the, the big sporting events, and we're the country that a lot of music comes from. So a lot of what people declare or think of as successful comes from the U.S., and we really do live that out um, in our everyday lives. So uh, what ends up happening is it might be present in other cultures, this achievement idol, but I think here in our culture it can be even more subtle because achievement in and of itself is not a bad thing. But when the level of importance gets to the place where it's way up here, achievement is way up here, that's when it can kind of get twisted. Maybe you relate to this a little bit. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you just have noticed that you find yourself struggling to be content with your own life? Like, I'm not just talking about a day, but maybe there's been a time where it's been a few days, a few weeks, a few months, where if you were honest, you just feel dissatisfied with your life. It might be one part of your life, or it might be your life as a whole right then. And if you're, you're doing a kind of a self-evaluation and you just do not feel satisfied or you don't feel content with your life, it could be for any number of reasons. Maybe it's because of your job at the time. Maybe it's because of your marriage. Maybe it has something to do with your checkbook at the time or because of your family, what's going on in your family. Maybe it's because of your physical condition and you just kind of get into a place where you're just in a funk. You're just dissatisfied. Or maybe it's because of your appearance. Or maybe it's because of the car you don't drive. Or maybe it's because of the house you do or don't live in. Whatever it could be. But you just get to a place where you're dissatisfied. And you sit in that for a little bit. 
I went through a time like that a couple years ago, and, and um, I just had to ask myself some questions that were really important to me. The first one was this. Is this lack of contentment that I'm experiencing right now, is this a work that God is doing in me? I mean, is this a holy discontent? Does God want me to be discontented right now because he's wanting to teach me something and he's wanting to do something in me? Or is this coming from some cultural image that I'm trying to attain? Is this coming from some pressure that I'm putting on myself or something that the culture's putting on me that's telling me I need to achieve something different than what I've had in life in order to be satisfied? So if it's coming from the culture's image instead of from God, then I know right away that there's probably an idol, idolatry issue in my life, and I probably need to return to God and help and ask God to help me pursue him first and to get rid of this um, other God, small g God that I might have before him. But if it doesn't seem like it's, if it does seem like it's from God, um, and it's not something that God wants me to feel discontent about. There's another question. That's, am I trying to achieve my own contentment in life? And this is a second question I've often asked. God, am I trying to achieve and go after contentment, or am I really allowing my contentment to come from, from your voice and to hear your voice in life? And I think that's another subtle way that we slip into idolatry. So achievement in and of itself um, is an idol that if you're a follower of Christ, sometimes it can subtly sneak in and just seduce you. And if the solution to your contentment comes back to you achieving more, then you probably are, are unintentionally slipping into some form of idolatry. There's a guy in the Bible who illustrates this beautifully. As a matter of fact, if you look in the subtitle of your Bible, they actually give him a title that says it all. He's called the Rich Young Ruler. Rich Young Ruler. Sounds successful, doesn't it? <laughs> All the things that we aspire to, in our, uh, to be rich when we're young and to be a ruler when we're young, that guy surely was successful. And in this famous passage of Scripture, Jesus talks to this man who has really tried to do everything right in life. He's worked hard at being obedient. He's worked hard at following all the rules. He's earned a great reputation. He's a man of resources. But God points out, Jesus points out that he's missing something. Scripture says that this man actually ran to Jesus and he fell on his knees before Jesus and he said, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? What do I need to achieve to be secure? What, do, what that I've not already achieved in life do I need to achieve in order to be secure? That tells us that he's empty. He's got all these things, and yet he didn't feel secure, and he didn't feel like he had necessarily achieved enough. He had been good enough to know that he was going to receive eternal life. So scripture says that after um, he asked that of Jesus, Jesus points him back to the Ten Commandments. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus starts at the back end of the commandments and works his way front. So he starts asking him about all these things, you know, have, have you loved people? Have you been faithful to this? That kind of thing. But he does not ask him the big two that we looked at. He doesn't ask him those. So what's the young man's response? And this is in your outline. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I love this. I love that little blurb right there because you would think that Jesus could have been, if you read this without that little part inserted in there, maybe you'd think Jesus was getting ready to stick it to this guy. I'm sure he thought he had it all together because he was rich and young and all that. Whatever. But no, the Bible says, takes a pause and it says, Jesus loved this guy. Jesus saw his heart to do what was right. Jesus saw his desire uh, to, to, to be secure, to find his security in God in, in some way deeper. So it says Jesus felt a genuine love for him. But then look, Jesus, in this moment of genuine love, gets ready to speak some life-changing truth to this guy. So there's still one thing that you haven't done, Jesus told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, 
and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. I want you to catch this today, because this isn't about being rich or poor. There's a heart issue attached to this whole packet, passage that's very, very important. Here's a man that Jesus loved. And in the midst of that love, Jesus says to this man, the man who had achieved so much in life, Jesus says, what I want you to do is to give up the very things that you've allowed to give you your identity. Jesus looked at him and said, I want you to give up the very things that have shaped in your mind the man that you are because those things are keeping you from me. And when you've done that, when you've given those things up, then I want you to come and be with me. I want you to come find your identity in me. I don't want you to be known as the rich young ruler anymore. I want you to be known as a child of God. I want you to be known as a follower of Christ. And when you find your identity there, everything, everything's going to change. So this desperate man who ran, fell on his knees before Jesus in search of security and in search of significance, Jesus basically confronts the idols that he probably didn't even know that he had in his life. And he says, do you know what I want from you? I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me and follow me so you get what life is really all about. Come and be with me. And what did God say to the Israelites in the first couple of commands? He said, I am the Lord your God. You should have no other gods before me. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and our value rest in our own wisdom, in our own strength, and in our own performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be the, at the top of the heap, means that no one is like you. You are supreme. And I would add this one caveat to that maybe, and that's that personal success and achievement can also lead us to a place where some of you here today might feel like failures. And if you feel like you've failed, and if you feel like you've, you're never going to be good enough, and if you feel like you haven't amounted to anything in life, you have still embraced our culture's image of success and allowed it to be your idol because you feel like a failure. And so you've looked at the standard and you've said, I don't measure up. But you're still worshiping that standard by beating yourself up all the time for not having got there. There's just as much idolatry in the one who has achieved the culture's image of success as there is in the person who has failed to achieve it and beats themselves up over what they aren't. Both the person who thinks highly of themselves because of their achievement and the person who thinks less of themselves because of their lack of achievement are worshiping at the feet of the very same idol. And God says to each one of us today, just like he said to the Israelites, that's not what I plan for you. That's not what I desire for you. You've got the whole success image thing. You've got it all twisted around. Your life is backwards, what you value, how you define yourself. It's all turned. And I want to turn it around and redefine it for you. The achievement idol in our life can't just be removed. It has to be replaced. And that's what leads us to the second point today. I redefine success when I, number two, start living from my God-given identity. When I start living from my God-given identity. And returning to this passage in Exodus again, it says, Then God gave the people all of these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other small g gods. 
The way that God defines success looks more like this. It starts with our true identity in him. It leads us to true intimacy with him and those around us. And then we reflect the image of Christ to the world around us when we've got this in the right order. So let me explain that a little bit. First, we need to understand and embrace our true identity. And that's why God brought this up first. When he, he said, when it comes to our relationship, never forget it. Never forget that it all starts with me. I am the Lord your God. He reminds them of his identity, and then he reminds them that he is their God and that he's given himself in this special covenant relationship with them. It's exclusive that he is the one who is defining this relationship. He goes on in this verse to say, I am your rescuer, that I'm the one who rescued you out of Egypt. Um, it's because of my actions that you are no longer slaves. God is saying, it's because I chose to rescue you that we can even have this conversation today. Because this conversation wouldn't even be possible if I hadn't chosen to be your rescuer. Similarly, later on in the New Testament, God says this in John 15. He says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. Listen to the end of this verse. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. God says your freedom is because of me. I've ordained this relationship. Their, their identity, our identity, has to begin there with God. We have to recognize that it's because of God that we have freedom today. It's because of him that we've been rescued. So our true identity is the one that he gives us, and that's that we're his people, and we're his because he made it so. He made it that way. That's where our true identity stems from. So when we talk about redefining success, we're talking about the fact that it all has to launch from our recognition of our God-given identity. So once we've started to nail that down, then the opportunity to have intimacy comes next. True identity leads us to intimacy or closeness of relationship with both God and with each other because that's what he designed us for. He designed us for intimacy with him and he designed us for intimacy with each other. And in reading these words in Exodus, I'm always struck by this one particular word that describes God and I actually didn't used to like this when I read it in Scripture. I thought it was a negative description of God. It didn't work in my framework. But when it refers to God as a jealous God, and I always thought, that sounds kind of petty. Like, God's jealous? Really? Like, why would Almighty God be jealous? Like, I saw it as almost a little bit of a demeaning term. And so I didn't like reading that in Scripture. It says in verse 5, You must not bow down to them, these idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And that word jealousy is, is one that's used actually a number, of times, a number of times in Scripture to describe the way that God feels about his people. And what it means is this. God is saying, you mean too much for me, for me to be okay with you sharing your affection with other gods. You just mean too much to me for me to allow you to get sidetracked, for me to allow you to be hijacked, that you're not able to share, for you to go out and share affection with other gods and miss out on the true intimacy that I intended for you to experience. The closest example that I can think about this is to marriage, all right? This is just as close as it gets. I have a jealous affection for my wife. I love her so much. But for our relationship to remain intact, she needs to know that I'm not going to tolerate her having relationships with a bunch of other fellas. Like, not intimate, close relationships. It's just not going to work. For our covenant to work, uh, for things to work out in our marriage, it's going to have to be fairly exclusive between the two of us. It's not, I'm going to be a jealous husband if you're going out with other fellas the whole time while we're married. That's not going to work for me. And vice versa. It should be the other way as well. 
But that jealousy makes sense to everybody. You hear about that, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. He should be that way with his wife. He shouldn't want her running around with other guys. He shouldn't be running around with other girls. That's an exclusive relationship. That relationship makes sense. And yet we translate that and we think about it. It's similar to what God is saying here. This relationship with his people that God wants to have with you and with me, it's all framed by love. It's framed by intimacy. He's saying, I can't even bear the thought of you going out and giving your attention and, and all, pouring all of your life into these idols that are just going to pull you away from me and get you sidetracked and hijack you from the life that I've intended for you. God's saying, if you cheat on me with other gods, this covenant isn't going to work. It's not going to work. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss out on the benefit. If you keep me first, though, there's going to be this beautiful relationship that's going to result. And jealousy and intimacy, they go hand in hand. They do. If you're intimate with someone, you're jealous for that love and that relationship with them. You don't want that to be shared with a whole bunch of other people in your life. When you get married, you say to your spouse, I choose you. But then not just that you chose them, but you say to them, I chose you and nobody else. I'm choosing you exclusively. And that's what God wants us to be able to say to him. I'm choosing you exclusively. I won't put other things that I'll worship ahead of you, God. It's you and you alone. God says he has a jealous love for us in that way. So when we start to live out our God-given identity, then it leads us into healthy intimacy with God. And we have a strong identity, so we're able to relate to each other in a healthy way. And then finally, it leads to a, a healthy image that we reflect and in his book, Identity Theft, uh, Mike Bro, who wrote it, who uh, these outlines or these uh, little uh, illustrations that are in your outline came from him, he says this. He says, then where does this intimacy lead? It leads to the accurate image. Because instead of bowing down to some phony, wannabe God, some cultural idol that you may have, you now start to reflect the image of your creator. And you begin to live in the image of God again, just as he always intended. Living as God intended is a great way for us to think about God's definition of success. You are successful when you live the life that God intended you to live in an intimate relationship with him. This week I looked at, uh, I just Googled, most successful um, or most uh, prestigious jobs in the eyes of Americans. And let me give you the, the order. You know what the most prestigious or most successful job is as voted by all of us? In the, in the U.S., can you guess? Doctor, good call. Doctor was the first one. Some people would think the president, but no, apparently doctors rank above. Uh, number two was lawyer. Number three was president of the United States. And number four was professional athlete. These are the things that we value. Uh, this is where we put our, our order. So, you know, my pride kind of got to me as I looked at this, and I thought, you know, I'm going to look and see where pastor falls on the list. Just want to just wanna know. First page. Second page, third page. It ended, the list ended, and pastor was not on there. Most prestigious, most successful. Nobody thinks in that way. So uh, if yours wasn't on the list either, you can cry with me later. Uh, we'll, we'll find our true identity somewhere else. Prove to all of them. But you know what I've learned in my lifetime? I've learned this. There is nothing more prestigious than just being used by God, being the person he's called you to be, and being used by him in whatever environment he places you in. So if you're a doctor, don't let your prestige come from the fact that you have the most prestigious job, most successful job in the U.S. Allow God to use you uniquely right where he placed you for his purposes. Be the person who he has called you to be, who knows your true identity. If you are a, oh, it doesn't matter. If you are a, a teacher, then make a difference as a teacher. If you are a lawyer, a carpenter, a truck driver, a janitor, a stay-at-home mom, 
wherever God has placed you, find your value, your prestige in being who God has called you to be, being the healthiest you that you can be, and allow God to do a work in and through you right there at that place where he's put you. You are a much-loved child of God. You're unique and you're different from anyone else around you, and God is using you uniquely, and that is success. That's what the Bible says is, is success, is being able to say, wow, God, thank you for using my life right here where you've placed me. There's a guy named Saul in the Bible, and uh, he's kind of the poster child for the work, the image thing. He was rich and successful and intelligent and powerful and respected and admired, but the Bible says he was also empty. And then he met Jesus. And after he met Jesus, he became a whole new person, and he even changed his name to Paul, and then he went on to write more than half of the New Testament. And one of the greatest life change stories in all of Scripture is kind of summed up in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7-9. through 9. The Apostle Paul, who had once put so much of his faith in his own accomplishments and his own achievements, he says it this way, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them all worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Before we close today, I want to be clear about something. Achievement is not the problem in life. But making an idol of achievement can be a big problem in your life. Being successful at something is not the problem. God wants us to be successful. He wants us to achieve great things in life. God wants us to, our drive to success to be reshaped around his values rather than how our culture defines it. God wants us to find our contentment in intimacy with him. God wants to develop character qualities in us that are going to change the people around us and transform, will be a blessing to others. He wants us to, to discover our own unique gifts. He wants us to be our own unique selves and live out his image in the place where he's placed us. A pastor in a book that I read recently says it this way. It's the last quote in your outline there. It says, every day this week, you have the opportunity to decide if you want to achieve your life or receive it. If you make achieving your goal, your constant companion will be complaint because you will never achieve enough. But if you make receiving the goal, your constant companion will be gratitude for all that God is achieving in and through your life. God invites us to turn to him and to receive life from him. He invites us to live each day from the identity that he has given us as his children. And he reminds us that he chose us because he loves us. Would you just bow your head with me for a moment? I can't tell you how important this series is and how important it is for you to get your identity straight. All of your life really depends on how you think about this. You see, it's all about how we know God. When you know and you trust in the God who loves you consistently and freely, it changes you because you know who God is, because you know who you are in his eyes. And once that happens, it leads to intimacy both with God and with the other people in your life because now you know who you are. You're secure and you're accepted in who you are. And then real intimacy can flow between you and your spouse or you and your kids or you and your friends. And you bring a more secure and more joy-filled person 
into all of your relationships. And then that intimacy leads you into this right image and you start to reflect the image of your creator and you start to live out your God-given identity. You are deeply loved by God this morning. And your worth is not found in your possessions. Your worth is not found in your reputation. Your worth is not found in your title. Your worth is not found in the applause that you get or in everybody telling you how great you are. This morning, if you're a child of God, you stand anchored in the love of God. You stand anchored in the deep, wide, high, long love of God. The one who tells you, hey, you're my child, and I love you with a radical love, and that's all that you need to be. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Father God, you are worthy of our love and of our worship. And we confess to you that in our brokenness and in the midst of our lack of contentment, sometimes we find ourselves crawling not to you, but to idols instead. We know that you're a jealous God and that you desire us to worship you and you alone. And we know that you're a merciful God who invites us to return to you as well. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for your great mercy for us. We worship you today. We worship you alone. We thank you for your unconditional, unending love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.